All right, everyone, welcome to the Jay Davis Show. Uh, super excited to have Cliff Hudson with us today. Uh, he has an amazing career that we're going to learn a lot about today, uh, but spent 25 years, right? 25 years. Well, I was, uh, I was CEO, CEO, of yeah, Sonic. CEO of Sonic for 23 years, COO for a couple of years before that, and 35 years with the company in total. And so I had uh, eight, 10 years with the company before I became CEO. So I had a little, little bit of it's a lear learning process there. So. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you learned a whole lot of things. And so uh, Cliff also has a uh, podcast called uh, Master of None. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yes. Yeah. Master of None has a book. Uh, so super excited. Thank you for coming today, Cliff. Happy to be with you, Jay. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, why don't you give us just kind of a quick overview of kind of how you got to where you are today, some of those highlights of things you've experienced. Okay, happy to do that. So um, uh, I, um, you know, my past, once I, uh, I got into school, I really wasn't sure what, I, what kind of path I wanted to be on. The people that I admired when I was a teenager, as I'd look around the community and see people doing interesting things, uh, Coincidentally, um, you know, so uh, a local businessman that I watched what he was doing, a, a, a community leader, a politician, et cetera. What I saw the common denominator was with each of these people and in the 1970s, uh, early 70s, this happened to be, they all, all happened to be men, um, was they all had law degrees. And so... As a teenager, I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll go to law school. Not because I thought I want to practice a certain kind of law, but because I saw it gave people flexibility. These people were in government, yeah. government, business, law practice, politics, you know, et cetera. So it seemed to create some good flexibility. So I, I uh, what I did enjoy purposefully was the study of history before I went to law school. And I, I, I enjoyed that then. And I enjoy it now. And that's my primary reading um, so, uh, from there, I did go to law school and, uh, attended law school at Georgetown university, had a, a, a good experience there at Washington, DC is a great place to go to law school because of the history of, and the current making of the law there, uh, of a variety of sorts. And I lived, um, Georgetown laws on Capitol Hill uh, and it's north west of the Capitol, and I lived east of the Capitol, so almost every day I'd go by the Supreme Court, I'd go by uh, the Senate office building, I'd go by the United States Capitol, a variety of regulatory agencies, almost, I'd often walk right by the Securities and Exchange Commission, so on and so forth. So great stuff for a you know, 23, four or five year old thinking about, you know, alternative paths and so on. Um, I did practice business law for four years after uh, law school and then became general counsel at the ripe age of 29, I became the general counsel of signing, you know, and my view at the time was, well, what the hell? I know everything. So why shouldn't I be general counsel? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, makes sense. That's right. That's right. Made sense in, in retrospect, retrospect, it's somewhat comedic, but that's okay. So, <laughs> um, but I came and became general counsel at 29. And when I was, I think, 31, we bought the company uh, in a leveraged buyout transaction. None of us had any money. Uh, so we had to use the company's assets to buy, buy the company. We put up very little equity. And even the equity we all put up, most of us borrowed it, you know. So 
um, we bought Sonic in 1986 for 10 million bucks. And we borrowed roughly 8 million, that like 10 million. And um, uh, we borrowed using the company's asset. We borrowed 8 million. And then, like I said, I, the little piece I put in, I borrowed two thirds of my piece, you know, to put in. So at any rate, um, we bought it in 86. Um, the turnaround, honestly, had already started taking place, 87, 88, and things began growing rapidly. You know, a little tidbit that most people wouldn't know and they'd be surprised to hear. We bought it in 86, and about 83, the auditors of the company had issued a going concern um, opinion, meaning, of course, they had questions about whether the company was going to survive. Well, 84, a new CEO came in, 84, fiscal 84, fiscal 84, he hired me. He kind of rebuilt the team. And um, uh, and he wanted to buy the company. Well, it was a great time to buy it because when going concern opinion, it's been a hard market, you know. So yeah. uh, we bought it, 10 million bucks at 86. The turnaround plan that he had put in place and, uh, and the team had developed was now starting to take, take hold. That wasn't apparent, 85, 86. In retrospect, it was quite apparent. 87, 88, really started taking off. 88, we recapitalized the company. Management that was remaining really stepped up in terms of ownership. 89, the private equity guys decided they were ready to capitalize because, they, I mean, they really was taking off at that point. 88, 89, 90, we had double-digit, uh, double-digit, well, double-digit, same-store sales, but uh, a triple-digit EPS growth rate. In 88, 89, my, so now I should, I should say EBITDA, but regardless, yeah, because we're a private company, that was more the measure. So, uh, the private equity guys decided we should go public. Um, so we did, we filed in 90, excuse me, just before Simon Satan invaded Kuwait market went to hell. We really had to slow walk it, almost shelve it. We couldn't do that, but really slow walk it for months. And, uh, and, um, uh, January of 91, when uh, the United States uh, went into Kuwait, market came roaring back. In February, we did a roadshow. First week of March of 91, thing went public. What we had bought for 10 million bucks five years later had a market value of $100 million. And and I had gotten a real education. Uh, yes. and, and I think one of the things I don't talk in my book, my book, Master of No, one of the things I don't talk, and I regret not talking about this, is what I had through that period was a real apprenticeship. It was serious OJT. I, I learned how the company made money. I didn't make money. Um, I learned how to sell it to people. I learned what investors of different sorts were looking for. And um, um, so after we were in public, my boss, quite to my surprise, although I'd gotten a real education in corporate finance, my boss asked me to become chief financial officer uh, from general counsel to chief financial officer. So in uh, summer 92, I became CFO. And um, I do talk about this in my book. I, I did that for a year and then I thought, uh, oh my God, I'm about to turn 40 years old. Oh my God, you know? So I got to do something different. And so I went to him and I said, well, I'm about to turn 40 years old. Yeah. And he, he, he said, what are you gonna do? I said, well, I don't know. I'm just gonna go out and find out. And you know, I'd made some good money off the IPO. Uh, more money than I ever imagined I'd have in my life. So I thought, what the heck? I've got flexibility. I might as well give it a shot. Go ahead and see what's what. Well, instead, he said, well, why don't you stay here and become COO and run the company? 
And I said, well, that sounds different, you know? So in essence, uh, it took me about 30 seconds to say yes, you know, to that <laughs> offer. And um, so in the summer of 93, I became a COO and I was here rebuilding a management team. And uh, a year and a half into it, I had rebuilt the management team. We were going through a huge license renegotiation with our franchisees. That was a, that was a big deal in you know, a whole lot of ways. Um, and in the spring of it, 95, a year and a half after I've been made COO, uh, my boss surprised all of us by telling the board he was going to leave and uh, leave the company. And, uh, and uh, he recommended to them that I become a CEO. So they asked me to leave the room. They asked him to leave the room. And um, they called me back in. They said, do you want to be CEO? And I said, well, you know, I'm here. You know? I'm already doing, kind of doing the job, running the company today. They wrote, rebuilt the team, renegotiated the license agreement with franchisees. So, you know, I guess so. Why not? And uh, so in April of 95, I became CEO. And I was CEO for the next 23 years. So that was kind of the path. But when I became CEO in 95, the system had just over 900 million in sales. And when it was bought 23 years older, we had 4.5 billion in sales. And um, in that period of time, that first four years have been public, 91 to 95, when public is worth 100 million. When I became CEO, it was worth 200 million. But we sold it. 23 years later for 2.3 billion. So it had gone up in value, you know, I should say 11 times in that time, in that 23 years. So it was a real good run. Good returns. Yeah. Yeah. Good, it, it, it was good. It's returns. Amazing. If you really want to compare them back to what I put in 1986 versus what I got out in 2018, they are almost bizarre returns, but they were fantastic. So yeah. can't complain. And I don't. So. So yeah, that was the run. That's amazing. That was the run. That was the path. And, and of course, all kinds of wild things happening in 23 years to build the business, build the brand, and uh, create some pretty interesting business, but also life opportunities. Yeah. I think that's something that people outside of the entrepreneurial world never fully understand. Because if you haven't done it, you can't fully understand that you get to an outcome like Sonic got to. Uh, and you, you're like, man, that must have just been all blue skies and right just happiness right. and fun and 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 i remember talking to someone uh one of, some of our really good friends are are the original guys on the traeger team yeah. uh they were the part of the five people who went and bought it uh along with jeremy andrus and, and one of them told me you know the day before we sold for a billion dollars this company that we'd bought out of bankruptcy out of you know near oblivion uh, it was still a dumpster fire. It was still, you know, just things constantly going wrong, constant problems, because that's entrepreneurship. And so I think right. that's a great perspective that, uh, you know, in, in 83, 84, 85, it, it was not probably the wisest investment from the outside. Yeah. Well, when, uh, when the, you guys had to work hard, turn around. Right. When the man scene bought it, there were no other bidders. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, <laughs> Uh, you, you were the sole. We, we, we said we'll buy the company and there wasn't anybody else to, there was not another market. We simply had to get a, because we're all insiders, we had to get a, a, um, uh, a small regional investment banking firm to deliver an opinion to the fact that, yeah. uh, that there was fair value that we paid for the company. 
and and uh, it's crazy rearview mirror sort of way. It was great value for the company, but in terms of its potential, it was we got a good deal. Yeah, yeah. And you're right about the entrepreneurship thing. People could always look at it and say, you know, gee, you're really lining it up. You're really knocked down the park. But the fact is, uh, this is a human endeavor, you know, which means it's not fallible, which means now uh, people screw up. And so even with the best laid plans, uh, stuff happens that's not what you intended. And, and um, you're, of course, with some focus on risk management, you know, larger organization gets more sophisticated like that. The more you do work to try to ensure that you don't, Hit, hit on fatal risks, you know? And, yeah. And I think we got better at that over time um, in terms of assessing those risks and making sure we are a good spot, you know? But it was it was choppy over the years and none of it was, it was not a simple, straightforward path. A lot of the stuff that, that uh, I detail this in my book, Master of Men, how jack of all trades can still reach the top. I, I detail the fact that a lot of the things that we did that uh, contributed to our growth, uh, we kind of backed into, you know, they may not even been a, a yeah. direct strategy of our own, uh, that they're, they're, they appeared from third parties. They're brought to us by third parties. They may have even been brought to us with somebody saying, you know, can we make sure that this doesn't, uh, can you make sure you don't screw this up for me? And instead we said, well, how about if we take it and make sure it works for us? You know, so anyway, which is where our ice yeah. cream, where our ice cream program came from. So a franchisee saying, I'm doing this. Will you leave me alone? And my, my question was, how much of your sales got from ice cream? He said, well, the best store is 30%. I said, well, my word, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want to learn what you're doing. And so we yeah. learned his program and the rolled it out system wide and it changed the business forever in a hugely positive yeah. way. Just, just astounding. But that was not something that we said about as a matter of strategy. He, he brought that in, very entrepreneurial, been very successful with it in his own group of stores. And his request was, would you leave me alone? You know? So, yeah. funny, funny well, twist. Going into that and also with your book a little bit as well, I feel like just noticing that, I, I feel like I share this. I was telling you before we started that uh, I feel very similar that I'm a master, uh, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But I think a lot of that, the, the power in that in entrepreneurship comes from a curiosity. Um, and so just as you were saying that with your, your franchisee, you're like, oh, no, 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 I want to learn more. Uh, what do you think, what part has that played in that development for you? Well, I think it's a big part. Um, I think that uh, an entrepreneur oftentimes, most often, is a naturally optimistic person. I read something recently yeah. talking about the difference between optimism and what the difference between optimism and pessimism is that the, the optimist uh, 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 sees the risks differently. The pessimist sees the risks as outweighing going forward. And they, may, they may just help kind of balance things, but the pessimist sees the downside. And... Uh, but they're, what they're really doing is they're saying, uh, I see that the risks are so great. I don't want to jump into something. The optimist on the other hand says, I do this. Yeah, sure, there are risks, but that's what turns me on. Man, we're going we're gonna to overcome those risks. And um, 
I think that in the entrepreneur setting in the jack of all trades kind of concept, master of none, the entrepreneur um, it, it doesn't mind uh, the challenges. As a matter of fact, they may thrive on them, you know, and is optimistic that they can overcome them and ultimately be successful. Otherwise, they're not going to jump into the whole endeavor. So I think this is a big place that, you know, yes, you had to be intellectually curious, but you also have to be, you know, I think something of a practical, pragmatic optimist, because otherwise you, you don't, you don't see the upside of jumping in, you know? Yeah. So I think these are, these are char critical characteristics of entrepreneur. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. I think it's also really helpful because I think often one of my opinions is that often entrepreneurship is oversold in America uh, a little mm. bit. That we're that especially in the last ten years, we've been telling everyone everyone should be an entrepreneur. Uh, mm. But then you, like you said, you sometimes are missing some of those key characteristics. So you need yeah. to be a pragmatic optimist. And so, no, I, I think that's amazing. What are some of the other things uh, that you've learned about? Uh, these people who are jack of all trades. What, what are some of the other key learnings? Well, I think that um, a person that is um, uh, curious and um, uh, and wants to grow and wants to uh, seize opportunity, if they're uh, successful at it, um, one of the things that they do is they keep their head up, their eyes open, uh, meaning you can't come up with all the ideas yourself. And if you, if you limit your enterprise just to your ideas alone, you're going to limit your enterprise growth and you're going to limit your own experience. Um, so I mentioned the, the example of the franchisee coming in and saying, will you leave me alone in the ice cream program? And no, we're not leaving alone. We rolled it out. And now, I mean, uh, Sonic's, Got to be somewhere between 500 million and a billion in ice cream sales. I don't know where it is now. I left the company four years ago, but it's an enormous contributor to the profitability of the company. And it certainly was back at 96, 97, 98 when we rolled it out. It changed everything because the contribution to profitability was huge. At any rate, yeah. um, back to the point what, what is another char characteristic of the serial entrepreneur or the successful entrepreneur? Um, my uh, pitch on that would be that a successful entrepreneur is one that can then has no ego need to be the one that comes up with all the ideas. Rather, they can take someone else's idea, apply it to their own, and perhaps improve on the idea they borrowed from someone else. But more importantly, improve their own circumstance by adapting that idea. Let me give you an example of yeah. this. Now, and this is a Example, which in 2022 sounds like slam dunk. It's like, really, really? Come on. You know, but 20 years ago, that was not the case. So what am I referring to? Um, the fact that in 2001, that 95% of Sonic's sales came in the form of cash. That's insane. The, the, the payment for its business from consumers was cash, 95%. In other words, in 01, we hit 2 billion in sales. Um, I believe that is right. In 01, we hit 2 billion in sales, yes. Uh, um, uh, I think 
1.9 billion of that was cash and hundred million was credit cards. Now the problem was that the disincentive for the customer was you pull into a parking stall, order your food. If you want to play with a credit card, the car hop had to take the card away from you, carry it inside, run it through, bring it back. Well, okay. If that wasn't a disincentive 20 years ago, it'd be a big disincentive now. You know, here, let me give you a card. I'll bring it back to you in a little while, you know? So, um, <laughs> so what did we start experimenting with? Well, I went to a program in Chicago with CEOs, Nations Restaurant News, wanted to say, do a little panel. And, um, so what? The whole program was sponsored by Visa. And the Visa rep said, again, retrospect, slam dunk, but in time, wasn't, not necessarily intuitive. The Visa rep said, look, if you will make it easy for a customer to use a credit card, a woman leaving work will be twice as likely to stop at your shop versus a shop where it's not easy to use a credit card. And I thought, well, now, wait a minute. Now, almost 60% of our transactions come from women, which is different from the industry. And yeah. if a majority of our sales come from women and they'll use us more, if it's easier to use a credit card, why don't we make it easier? And how could we do that? Well, at the time, the thing that was rolling out that would be the opposite path was what we would call pay at the pump. You go to get fuel for your car and was it, uh, would you go to a place would you prefer a place that has pay at the pump or someplace where you had to put it in, go inside, pay for it, come back, or pay for it first, go back, you know, whatever? Well, the pay at the pump was enormously convenient. So it took us a little while, and I talk about some of that in my book, but it took us a little while. But we got we got the, a test in place with, with the, uh, we called it pays, pay at your stall, P-A-Y-S. And the consumers, the customers absolutely loved it. Yeah. And what we found immediately was when people used the credit cards, the ticket, average ticket was 40% higher. At that time, our average check was five bucks. When they used a the credit card, the average check was seven bucks. So we rolled that out across the system, I think in about 18 months. And um, it was just an enormous contributor to uh, growth and sales. And of course, ease for the operator because they do with cash less. Now, I told you in 2001, 95% of our sales were cash, 1.9 billion cash and 100 million credit cards in 2001. When the company was sold in 2018, the cash portion had grown from 1.9 billion to 2 billion. The credit card portion had grown from 100 million to 2.6 billion. So the system had gone, grown from 2 billion to 4.5 billion. 100% of the incremental growth was credit card transactions. So here's that something unbelievable. Here's something not my idea, um, not my technology. Uh, simply went to uh, a conference. Uh, because I felt like I should. Didn't even like to go to conferences that much. It was a small deal in Chicago. I'd go up in the morning, back in the evening. And um, yeah. um, and here this woman had this idea, and, I, and it just turned the light bulb on, you know? And so I went back. I actually met some resistance internally. 
and uh, both within the company and within the franchise system. But eventually it was done, and, and the operators were like, man, this is slam dunk, you know? So, yeah. um, but that's, again, a deal. I didn't come up with the idea. You simply had to look at it and say, how can I use that idea to better my business? I don't have to come up with all the ideas. I can't possibly come up with all the ideas. All the ideas, but how can I see other ideas, maybe improve on them, or maybe just apply them to my business and improve my business, even if I don't improve on the idea, you know? So I yeah. think that in a way, that's kind of one of the more blatant ones for the Sonic business, because not only it make it easier for moms, which is the visa pitch, but all the millennials coming along, you know, yeah. they, in 1990, if you said, I'm going I'm to make a $3 charge, people would have said, what's wrong with you? You don't have any cash? What's wrong with you? Yeah. 20, 25, yeah. 25 years later, people are doing $3 charges all over the place, you know? Yeah. So. Anyway, I so, still actually remember when I did that the first time at Sonic. Yeah. I remember I, yeah. I lived in Brazil for a couple of years. And mm -hmm. so I was out of this, the country. And when I came back, there's a Sonic near BYU. Yeah. And I remember doing it the first you, time. Using like, wow, this is yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was cards, very convenient. Cards everywhere. Yeah, very, yeah, very quick, very easy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, well, a big convenience thing. Big convenience. Yeah. So that's awesome. I love yeah. that. I love that principle. Um, so I think one of the, probably the most common questions and a lot of the reason I started the podcast was uh, because I would, I regularly get young people, uh, college students, people just out of college or even friends coming to me and saying, I want to start a business. Mm. Uh, and usually kind of some of my feedback is A, around whether you should uh, whether you're fit for it. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do you know that? And then B, uh, what do you tell someone who's like, I want to start at something. What do I do? Yeah. Well, that's uh, those are very interesting questions. My experience of business was not with a start out you know? and my experience yeah. of business. No, uh, I didn't start out as a lead executive, lead executive. I backed into it over time. Uh, yeah. what, it, what, uh, the most fortunate thing. For me, and if a person has the opportunity to do this, it, it probably is my number one advice. The most fortunate thing for me was that I had this opportunity for, you know, an eight or 10 year um, apprenticeship. And yeah. so my advice to most people, uh, if you think you want to jump into something, particularly as an entrepreneur, yeah, you know, where where are you going to pick up your basic learning about, you know, the skills necessary. We're going to pick that up in the first place. And it's an awful expensive entrepreneur experience to say, well, I'm going to start it with no experience and I'm just going to jump in, you know, well, okay. That's a, you know, you know, good luck, you know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, probably one, uh, maybe a better answer or, or prodding to the entrepreneur would be, well, why don't you go find some place where you can you know, practice that trade for a while and see what you think about it and see where somebody's yeah. doing, doing well, see where they're screwing up. You can approach it with your own entrepreneurial eye. What would you do differently? But the big thing is learn something, you know, learn about it and uh, learn where that industry, whatever it is, where it's come from, where it appears to be going to, what aspects of it you want to build on. So I think the idea of the 
apprenticeship uh, is huge. And anybody that's wanting to get into a ground floor business opportunity, my, I, I think my first question would be, yeah, where do you see an opportunity to get some training, you know, before you jump yeah. on your own? So, yeah, oh, I love that. I couldn't agree more. I think there, it's not a coincidence that most successful entrepreneurs are in their 30s, late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Yeah. I think we have this view of the Facebook founders who start in Harvard. Right. And that is, it's not even an exception. It's like the black swan event. Yeah. It is just so rare. Yeah. Uh, but it's, but, but it's what in our culture we all think happens most of the time. And it's one in a billion. <laughs> so, well, and also I, I we, we I haven't great seen advice. We have to see people as being overnight success, successes, and that's virtually never true. I mean, yeah. usually somebody works hard 10, 12, 15 years, then we learn about them because they build scale or they hit a new trend or whatever. We learn about them and we say, overnight success. Yeah, we got so it took me 12 years, you know. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, uh, at any rate, and, you know, and, and from a sonic standpoint, there were times where people would say, you know, Sonic seems to really kind of gone through this growth spurt, which was true, but really what it went through in uh, oh, two, oh, 2004 and particularly in the teens is it went into a na into national media. And once you yeah. got on national media, then people, here we were a 50-year-old business, you know, and people viewing it almost as though we're a new business. Well, they're just seeing it on television for the first time. And and yeah. there's newer, newer markets, you know. So how many anyway. how many uh, locations were there when you bought it? When we bought the company, that was it was right around a thousand. I think just a little less. Oh, okay. Let's just say nine hundred and eighty. It had been when this whole going concern thing, it had grown to you know, by eighty one or eighty two, had grown to thirteen hundred stores, and then closed about thirty percent of the system. And the company, wow. the company was on a lot of leases and so on. That's when the auditors gave a going concern. So there were 900 and something when we bought it. And when we, when I, it was acquired after ICO for 23 years, we had 3,600 stores. So it had grown, you know, four times over the cash. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Well, and more importantly, well, the system, system wide sales had grown from, well, we bought it. The system white sales were like three hundred million, and when we sold it, it was four point five billion. You know, so that was the the big transition to total brand size. That's anyway, unbelievable. Yeah. One of the other things you mentioned that I'd love for you to expound upon. You mentioned uh, before we started that you think a lot of times we feel guilt about being a jack of all trades. Uh, I completely agree. That resonated with me immediately. Um, can you expound on that and kind of tell uh, the listeners what you've learned about that over time? Because I think that is, we are very often pushed to being a specialist. Uh, and I think there's even some some challenge because we do need to specialize. We do need to learn our trade a, a bit uh, and have that apprentice time. Uh, but then at some point we have to kind of generalize again. Can you kind of explain that process for you? Well, I think you just did a pretty good job, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the just the, the special up what you said. Yeah, I think in a, in a given area, whether it's uh, Madison law, uh, you know, finance, whatever, 
um, it does take a while to develop some expertise. There is a push, and I think too much of a push in our site is specialized. Maybe we're backing off that now. But um, there has been for a long time a push to specialize in the, in the old thing. What are you going to be when you grow up? You know, uh, maybe people should have said, what series of life experiences would you have, like to have that you think would be enriching yeah. for you, you know? And and you can say, okay, well, I'd like to do these five things, you know? But uh, and maybe in sequential over, order, maybe overlapping. But the fact is, we we historically haven't thought that way. Um, I think that um, uh, the idea, uh, first of all, as a younger person, the the pressure you can feel in college, coming out of college, et cetera, uh, it's not just specializing. I think you can have the mistaken notion that you ought to you ought to have defined where you want to end up. Yeah, you know, and my reaction to that would be stop doing that. You know. Because, yeah. because life is a journey, and the last thing in the world is possible, much less even desirable, is to want to design where you're going to be at the finish line, you know? Which, because yeah. that's, that's a bit of a joke to think you can do that, you know? But the, the fact is, the journey, and you want to take that journey, and you want, to, you want to be open to all the great things that can happen in life. So I think what you do, you know, a younger person can make the mistake of believing they have to know the path they're going to be on. The path's going to open itself before you. So you, your, your best job, your best approach to that job is simply to prepare well. You know, and whatever that means, if accounting interests you, you can study accounting, if finance interests you, study finance, marketing, you know, so on and so forth. And if uh, playing the guitar and singing you know, interest you like nothing else in the world, then get on it, you know, but put your, kind of put yourself into it. Now, anyway, so, um, I, so preparation, I think it's uh, important, but them remaining open. And, and if a person, if a person, if something clicks for them, like nothing else, and they know they want to be a brain surgeon and that's just what they're going to do, then go for it. But I do think there are a lot of people out in the world, quite apparently like you and like me, they had a variety of interests, enjoyed music, enjoyed history, enjoyed politics, enjoyed travel, enjoyed, you know, so on and so forth. And it's like, well, then do all those things, you know, one degree or another. I had the, I had the, yeah. I had the fortunate opportunity of an apprenticeship, learning a business. Uh, I didn't, or I didn't open the opportunity to buy the company, but I was part of the group that did buy it. And I, I bought this very small piece of it. I did recognize opportunity over time and seize it and grow it. Um, but the fact is, I got a lot of training. And then one day, to my utter surprise, my boss said, I'm leaving. Told the board that. I, you know, he, he didn't, I got no forewarning of it. And lo and behold, the board said, You want to run the company. So you can't make that happen, you know? So yeah. I prepared. And I think I prepared well, and then had a very interesting career running the company. But uh, uh, life's a journey. You got to be open to the the variations that it does present, and that's what makes life interesting. So nobody should put pressure on them to, themselves to say, "I need to define that path." I need to have an understanding of the path today and have it defined, or somehow I'm a failure. And it's like you know, let go of that, get rid of that. You know, don't think that way. Yeah. So, and I couldn't agree more. I think that's such a great point that I'm going to 
I'm going to take from this is stop trying to design the end from the beginning. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the point of the journey. Yeah. That's the point of the journey. <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, it's I fall into that trap. It's an illusion to think you can possibly do that anyway. Too many variables presented along the way. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, well, any other kind of final words of wisdom, uh, any calls to action, Obviously, people should go and buy the book. I bought it today. I'm super excited to read it. Well, you took the words right so, yeah. out of my mouth. The call to action is buy the book. Yeah. Master yeah. Done. <laughs> you know, how a jack of all trades can still reach the top. I do talk about a number of other experiences, life experiences, but also within Sonic and my time running the company. Some humorous, some not. But um, I think it'll give people uh, a sense of uh, 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 how life happens in that way and don't uh, put too much pressure on yourself that you've got to know it all and predict it all. Be open to change and, uh, uh, you know, work hard, stay open and keep your head up and uh, interesting things can happen and they will happen. So yeah, that'd be my pitch. I love it. I love it. I love when you said head up, eyes open. I there, think you that's a, there you go. There you go. Great, a great visual for uh, how we should approach life and and as an entrepreneur, that I that's been my experience in in my shorter uh, period of time is so often what we plan you, you back into stuff and you're like I don't even know how we got here but uh, yeah it right. ended up being the right thing and and kind of right just need to be that that flexibility is so crucial so well it is funny it's because amazing. so many over the years so many people give the advice keep your head down and yeah depending on the circumstance that that uh, on a battlefield, that's probably not a bad idea, you know. But by and large, <laughs> yeah. By and large, in life, you I think you're better off with your head up and your eyes open, your ears open. You know, open to all possibilities. Yeah, you'll miss the opportunities otherwise. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Well, I love it. Well, thank you again for for taking the time today and spending uh, spending time with us and sharing your wisdom and experiences bunch of notes that i'm walking away with so good happy to do so yeah happy to do so jay and i appreciate the time and opportunity to visit as well and uh be interested to uh, hear anything any other feedback you have on the book love it well thank you again cliff and everyone go buy uh cliff's book super excited to get in check it out thank you again very good take care jay thanks <laughs>